Before we start the show, I just wanted to fill you in on the craziness that has gone over here at Madness Headquarters. Three weeks ago, I managed to get Collier Landry's episode, The Brass Ring, recorded a bit early, and so Beck and I had some free time on Sunday night. We were hanging out upstairs, which is kind of a rare occurrence because the kids normally take over the television in the living room, and Beck and I hang out downstairs in our den. And on that day, there was a huge thunderstorm. So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden we started hearing this whining kind of siren sound. So I got up and looked downstairs to see what it was all about. And when I did, there was a foot of water in our den. We soon discovered that the sound we heard was actually our furnace trying to operate in about a foot of water. Because it's summer and we had the air conditioner on. So, as you can imagine, I screamed a lot of expletives, ran downstairs and into our laundry room, which has a door that leads to the backyard. And what I saw, no homeowner ever wants to see. Water was streaming in from the door, about three feet from the floor. And not only was our den level flooded, the water was flowing down to the basement, which is where we had our bedroom. And a month ago, the studio was down there. So we went into full-on troubleshooting mode and started assessing the situation, and then put in an emergency call to our insurance company. They in turn contacted Belfort Canada and got their disaster recovery crew to come over to our house about a couple hours later. So after I make the calls, I'm figuring I should probably take some pictures or document what's going on, and I shot a little one-minute video of the water pouring into the laundry room. Now, if you don't follow us on social media, you really should, because when I posted that video on Instagram, to this day, it's gotten around 14 million views. And a week later, I posted an update video, so everyone could see what work's been done. We've had people from all over the world sending us messages and leaving comments of support. So far, the most common comment that's been left is that it's got a real titanic vibe with the water flowing in through the door. With one person commenting, I've seen this before. Remember, there's room for two on that door. And we've had a lot of people asking us if we had a GoFundMe campaign or something like that that they could support us. And the truth is, our insurance company has been taking care of us so far. And Belfort Canada has been doing an incredible job cleaning up. Eric and his team are absolutely fantastic. So what I've been telling people is if they want to support us, there's many ways they can. You can leave a good review, tell a friend, or just keep listening. But if you want to support the show directly, you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash madnesspod. And I guess this is a good enough time as any to announce we are now producing Patreon-exclusive Madness episodes. So when you sign up, you'll now have one extra Madness episode per month that's of course ad-free and not on our regular feed. And that's patreon.com slash madnesspod. We've got a link in our show notes. So I want to say thank you to everyone who's been reaching out to us, and we've got a few months of chaos ahead of us, but we'll still be producing the episodes on time, because thankfully we moved the studio into the backyard. Talk about dodging a bullet. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised.
What if I told you that the boogeyman was real? That there really was a dark figure running around out there, waiting to strike? Where exactly? Nobody knows. Maybe hiding out in the woods, the tool shed, or maybe somewhere even closer, like your closet. And because the possibilities are endless, that's precisely why it's so terrifying. Now what if I told you there were two of them? Join me now as we take a look at the Denimora prison escape. You'll hear how an entire region was terrorized for more than three weeks, knowing that two dangerous killers were on the loose. But just where they were was anyone's guess. You'll also learn the grisly stories that landed the convicts in prison where they were supposed to remain. Adirondack State Park in northern New York is an area renowned for its ruggedness and seasonal beauty. But it's not an area for the faint of heart. It's positively treacherous and massive, almost the same size as the entire neighboring state of Vermont. It's in every sense of the word, a wilderness, and it's where a man named David Sweat chose to spend his 35th birthday on June 14, 2015. But this was no ordinary camping trip. He was roughing it to the extreme. He had no tent, few tools, and only meager amounts of food. For eight days, David had been bushwhacking his way through the mountainous terrain, following little-used trails, railroad beds, and blazing his own trails when necessary. Along with David on this grueling excursion was 48-year-old Richard Matt, a man who'd become David's closest friend over the past several years. In fact, the two had become practically inseparable, fast friends, you could say, partners in crime. However, their time in the wilderness hadn't exactly been kind to them. The weather had been miserable, and the bugs, well, they were merciless. It had been storming nearly the entire time, and they were completely soaked to the bone. As a result, Richard's feet were becoming severely blistered, his socks caked in his own blood, and neither of them had previously done any hiking of any sort for as long as either of them could remember. When the park was created in 1892, it was dedicated to the freedom of use for all people, for their health and pleasure. On this journey, however, neither David nor Richard were having any luck discovering the health benefits or pleasures of the outdoors. Freedom, on the other hand, which is what they were hoping for, was exactly what they found. Eight days earlier, just after midnight on the morning of June 6th, 2015, David Sweat and Richard Matt had escaped from New York's largest maximum state prison in the village of Denimora. It's safe to say, David and Richard weren't the kind of people the park's founders originally had in mind when it was first dedicated, because these particular men were ruthless, cold-blooded murderers, and there was every chance they'd kill again if they got the chance. Good afternoon. Today here at Clinton Correctional Facility, which was opened in 1865, we've had two inmates escape. This is the first escape from the maximum security portion of this facility. Last escape from a maximum security facility took place in 2003 in Elmira. Both inmates are serving time for murder. 
This morning, we noticed during the standing count at 5.30 a.m. at this facility, the two cells which were adjoining each other were empty. Search revealed that there was a hole cut out of the back of the cell through which these inmates escaped. They went onto a catwalk, which is about six stories high. We estimate they climbed down and had power tools and were able to get out to this facility through tunnels, cutting their way at several spots. David Sweat was the inmate with the brains behind the escape. He'd always been a planner, a thinker and a schemer, with an engineer's eye for detail and an elevated IQ to back it up. But throughout his life, even his childhood, David's elevated intelligence mostly went unnoticed, simply because he was always getting in trouble. By age nine, David was already prone to attacking his own mother by throwing knives and chairs at her. His unruly behavior caused her to have multiple nervous breakdowns that eventually accumulated to sending him off to live with his aunt and uncle, a situation he quickly ruined by stealing his aunt's car and wrecking it. David was then placed into foster care for a few years before returning to his mother's care as a teenager. Almost immediately, David began planning and pulling off burglaries and petty thefts. At 16, he even attempted to steal computers from a youth center by tying up an employee and shoving her in a closet. He had the whole thing planned out like an adolescent version of Ocean's Eleven, writing down every detail of his plan, including what he'd take, where it was located, his escape route, and a hand-drawn map of the building's interior. Although the plan was solid, the execution was flawed, and he was captured before he could even go through with it. The judge gave David probation and called him a teenage idiot. He couldn't have been more wrong. Foolish, yes. Idiot, absolutely not. David soon began dealing marijuana and committing burglaries with his first cousin, Jeffrey Nabinger and it wasn't long before David was caught stealing at 17 and sent to prison, where he would spend the next 19 months. After serving in his jail time, David decided he never wanted to go to prison again. But to David, that didn't mean reforming or going straight. It just meant not getting caught again. To try to avoid this, he now planned more carefully and calculated more thoroughly. Most of all, he began carrying a gun wherever he went, and if police did happen to catch him, he was prepared to shoot his way out, something he bragged openly and often about. By the summer of 2002, David Sweat was making moves. Still working with his cousin Jeffrey, the pair had successfully armed themselves by robbing a gun store in the middle of the night. Throughout the month of June, they'd stolen five vehicles off used car lots, a feat they were getting extremely proficient at, and with no intention of slowing down. Although David was only 22 at the time, he had big dreams of eventually running a dirtbag criminal empire. After stealing the cars, the pair drove all their stolen vehicles, including a Winnebago RV they planned to live out of, to an extremely secluded road on the outskirts of Kirkwood, New York a rural town on the state's southern border. They'd even given their new home a made-up address, Wonder Road. On June 3rd, 2002, 
David put another one of his highly planned burglaries into action. Along with Jeffrey and a third accomplice named Sean Duvall, they planned to steal guns from a fireworks and gun store across the border in Pennsylvania. And as per usual, David had meticulously planned the entire heist step by step. He'd drawn a map of the gun store's layout, and not only did everyone know what they were supposed to do, but what they were supposed to grab. Just before midnight, the trio set off in Dave's Honda Accord. 20 minutes later, they arrived in Halstead, Pennsylvania, where they stole a green F-150 from a used car lot. After stealing the truck, they dropped off David's Honda in the parking lot of a rural community baseball diamond just over the border in New York. Then the three of them headed off in the truck to Mess's fireworks shop to burglarize his gun store, and it went off without a hitch. After stealing a cache of weapons, they made their way back to David's car at the baseball field without being followed and believed they'd gotten away with another successful burglary. But just as they were about to leave, they were interrupted by a police cruiser pulling into the lot, shining a spotlight on them. 36-year-old Kevin Tarcia had been a deputy with the Broome County Sheriff's Department for 13 years and had no idea about the robbery. He'd been working the night shift, and it's been speculated. He was just simply driving past the field on his way home to take a lunch break in the middle of his shift. His home was just about half a mile down the road from the park, a small farm he'd purchased on deputy's wages with two horses and a barn. Kevin was a doer, a guy who liked to work with his hands, wrenching on motorcycles and classic cars, a genuine jack-of-all-trades, which was perfect for his role as Broome County Deputy, where the words, to protect and serve, often meant serving the public in many more ways than just responding to crimes. This was a county who'd never lost a deputy in the line of duty since its inception in 1806, but tragically, their spotless 196-year record was about to come to an end. When Deputy Tarcia pulled into the parking lot and shined a spotlight on David's Honda and the F-150, Jeffrey and Sean ran into the woods. David hid under his car. A moment he'd always known might come. A showdown with cops. A moment he bragged about being prepared for. The reason he was stealing guns in the first place. And there was no way Deputy Kevin Tarcia could have known. As the deputy approached the vehicles, David rolled out from under the truck, guns blazing, emptying the clip of his 44 caliber Glock as quickly as he could pull the trigger. Although most of the bullets struck Kevin's bulletproof vest, one went underneath and through his abdomen, knocking him down to the ground. And then, in a truly horrific scene, David climbed into his Honda and ran over the injured deputy dragging him across the parking lot beneath his vehicle. Jeffrey then came running out from his hiding spot, picking up Kevin's gun off the ground and fired two fatal rounds point-blank into the deputy's head. The three criminals then sped away back to one dirt road, but they couldn't keep their mouths shut. Later that day, at a 4th of July party, David told his girlfriend without a hint of remorse the cop was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jeffrey, who was also there, made a cruel joke that the deputy should have been a firefighter instead. 
Later, one of David's friends called the police to report everything she'd overheard. On July 6th, David, Jeffrey, and Sean were all arrested, but only David and Jeffrey were charged with capital murder. Because Sean cooperated with prosecutors, he was only charged with felony possession of a firearm. With Sean cooperating with prosecutors, David and Jeffrey each decided to plead guilty, accepting life with a parole in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. In late 2003, David Sweat was sent off to Clinton Correctional Facility in Denimora, New York, a place known as Little Siberia, because of its freezing winters and its remote location amidst a vast wilderness, where he was supposed to spend the rest of his natural life. The village of Denimora is quite simply a company town, and in this case, the company is the Clinton Correctional Facility. The only reason the village existed in the first place was to provide housing to employees of the prison built during the Civil War. Outside the prison walls, the population of Denimora sits around 1,000 residents, with almost every household having a family member working inside the correctional facility, which is how the town remained for generation after generation. Originally, inmates served as laborers for iron mines in the area, but once the mines dried up, they moved on to other things. The big business now at Clinton Correctional is sewing, with around 400 of its roughly 3,000 inmates working jobs as tailors. The clothing would then be sold predominantly to other government agencies. David Sweat was just one of the many inmates who took one of the low-paying tailor jobs shortly after being incarcerated. In letters to his mother, he talked about how much he enjoyed the experience, all things considered. What he didn't tell anyone was that while he was working away as a tailor and serving time for murder, he was also dreaming, planning, and scheming of ways to escape. A practically impossible puzzle to solve. To escape would take forever. But that, perhaps, was the only thing on David's side because he just so happened to have all the time in the world. But that all changed nearly five years later, when a man named Richard Matt was shipped off to Denimora in the summer of 2008. Richard Matt was born naturally gifted. He was intelligent, good-looking, athletic and artistic, but unfortunately came from a broken home. In the town of Tonawanda, New York, Outside Buffalo, Richard and his big brother were abandoned as children by their career criminal father, forcing them into the foster care system. Fortunately, Richard was placed into a loving foster home and had a second chance at making something of himself. Instead, something deep inside of him steered him toward a life of crime and violence. As a young teenager, Richard was placed into juvenile detention for stealing the houseboat and it was from there he escaped custody for the first time by stealing a horse and galloping away into a state park. There he evaded authorities by stealing food and supplies from holiday cottages while living in the woods, and from there, things only escalated. Throughout his late teens and twenties, Richard was in and out of prison, arrested on numerous occasions for burglary, violent assaults, and rape. He was the kind of guy who was on every cop's radar a ticking time bomb, and everyone knew it was just a matter of time before he'd do something to get him put away for good. 
1997, Richard was released from prison for burglary, and this time it seemed hopeful. He just might turn his life around. Richard Matt was hired by 76-year-old William Rickardson to do some honest work for probably the first time in his life. William owned and operated a food brokerage service that sold food near its best buy date to other businesses at a discount, and he hired Richard as a delivery man. But only six weeks into his new job, Richard was fired for stealing. Not long after, Richard got it into his head that William kept large quantities of cash inside his home. It's been speculated that William may have joked about having a hundred grand buried in his basement, and Richard had simply overheard the offhand remark, taking it seriously. In early December 97, Richard convinced a former co-worker, Lee Bates, to help him steal the money, and he agreed. After heading over to William's home, they knocked on the door, and as soon as William opened it, they forced their way inside, beating and torturing the 76-year-old, trying to get him to give them the cash. But all William could do was tell them the truth. There was no money, but it was an answer Richard refused to accept. What happened next would cause one officer to call Richard the most evil, cunning, sadistic person he'd ever investigated in 38 years. Richard and Lee Bates kidnapped William, throwing him into the trunk of Lee's car, binding his feet and hands with duct tape. They spent the next day driving along the highways between New York and Ohio, periodically stopping to open the trunk, question, beat, and continuously torture William. At one point, Richard broke four of William's fingers by bending them backward until they completely snapped. Finally, after a 27-hour marathon of torture and interrogation, Richard stopped once more and popped open the trunk. He then grabbed William's head and twisted until his neck snapped. Next, Richard and Lee drove to Tonawanda Island on the Niagara River, not far away from where they lived, where they hid William's body beneath a pile of wood. Days later, Richard returned to Tonawanda Island alone, but this time he brought along a hacksaw. Finding the place where they'd hidden the body, Richard severed William's limbs and head from his torso before throwing the dismembered body parts into the currents of the Niagara River. Almost immediately, William's disappearance was reported to police, and by mid-December, detectives were operating under the possibility that William may have been murdered, and they began narrowing down their list of suspects which included Richard Matt and Lee Bates. It wasn't until January 5th, nearly a month after the murder, when a local fisherman saw William's torso floating in the river. Police brought Lee Bates down to the station, and by the end of the interrogation, he confessed to what they'd done. But when they went to apprehend Richard, they discovered he was nowhere to be found. He'd already fled New York and crossed the Texas border into Mexico. If Richard had just kept his head down and avoided trouble, it's possible no one would have ever heard from him again. Instead, Richard started trouble in Mexico almost as soon as he arrived. In February 1998, about a month after William Rickardson's body parts began turning up in the Niagara River, Richard stabbed another man to death in a bathroom of a Mexican strip club. The man's name was Charles Peralt, 
a 53-year-old American working as an engineer for an electronics company in Matamoros. It's believed Richard witnessed Charles holding a large wad of cash, not unlikely considering the establishment they were in. Perhaps desperate for money, Richard stabbed the man in the back and robbed him. But this time, he didn't get away. Mexican authorities swiftly found him and threw him in prison with a 23-year sentence. Authorities in the United States wanted Richard extradited back to New York to face charges for the murder of William Richardson, and eventually in 2007, after nine years in a Mexican prison, Richard was sent back to the USA to face charges of second-degree murder. He was later found guilty and given a maximum sentence of 25 years to life, and off to Little Siberia he went. The inside of every prison is a distinct and unique environment, a culture closed off from the rest of the world. But it's not just the prisoners who exist in these strange ecosystems, it's the corrections officers as well. Men and women who often spend more time interacting with inmates than they do with their own families. And at Denimora, there is another element at play. Civilians working inside the facility, tailor shops, like the one David Sweat worked in, weren't operated by corrections officers, but rather civilians brought in to manage the rather unique workforce. Prisons have one job above all the rest, keeping inmates locked up. But no matter how perfectly the facility is built, as long as human beings are holding the keys, there's always a way to escape. Because humans make mistakes, we can be manipulated we can be complicit. And this is the flaw David Sweat and Richard Matt seized upon. After hearing about Richard and David's horrible and heartless crimes, you might find it hard to believe they were actually model prisoners inside Denimora. They were well-spoken and mostly polite, and because of their good behavior, they were given perks, like being given one of the good cells and allowed to work in the tailor shops. And because of the money they earned, they could afford food from the commissary instead of having to eat at the mess hall. But underneath their smiling exteriors, the two men were plotting ways to escape. Their sparkling conduct was just a part of the act. In the meantime, they were constantly looking for weaknesses they could exploit. And eventually, they found one, and her name was Joyce Mitchell. 51-year-old Joyce Mitchell was a tailor shop supervisor who'd worked at the prison since 2008. Her husband, Lyle, whom she'd been married to for 14 years, also worked in the shops, but the two usually worked in different areas. In 2013, Joyce was assigned to the same shop where David and Richard worked, and she quickly took a liking to the two inmates. Prison employees were encouraged to have positive relationships with the inmates, but there was a line that was never to be crossed. And at some point, Joyce definitely crossed it, and it seems it started with David. In September 2014, Joyce was caught supplying David with nude photos she'd taken of herself, and amazingly, she was allowed to keep her job, a decision made by government overseers, and not the prison itself. David, however, was reassigned to another tailor shop to keep them separated, and so the job of seducing Joyce into helping them escape fell to Richard, because that was the plan. 
to seduce Joyce and use her as a means to escape. And now it was Richard's turn, which turned out to be in their favor, because Joyce seemed to fancy Richard more than David anyway. Over the next few months, Joyce started showing up to work a little more dolled up than usual, wearing makeup, more revealing clothing, and she even lost some weight. She also began bringing in contraband from the outside to give to Richard. At first, they were small things, like a pair of reading glasses with battery-powered lights on them and homemade food. But then, things escalated. On April 2015, Richard kissed Joyce for the first time. Joyce then began secretly performing sexual favors for him, then started sneaking in other items that were much more forbidden than just home cooking. She brought in screwdriving bits and other small tools, and in May, she smuggled in eight hacksaw blades hidden inside frozen hamburger meat. It was around this time Richard told Joyce about the escape plan. In fact, he told her that both he and David had cut holes through the back walls of their cells, which was true, because almost the entire time Richard was busy working on Joyce, David was working on the other half of their plan. Remember all those tools Joyce had been smuggling in for Richard? Well, they were mostly for David, and he'd been using them every single night. Each night inside the prison, a final head count was performed at 11.30, when most inmates went to sleep, but not David. He went to work, and his work paid off. He'd managed to cut a hole through the steel wall in the back of his cell using a contraband saw blade, keeping the hole hidden with tape he'd painted to match the walls. As soon as the final headcount was done each night, David would exit his cell. On the outside of his cell was a long, thin corridor that housed all the cell blocks piping and electrical conduits. David and Richard's cells were on the sixth floor of the building, but there was just enough room between the metal catwalks and the walls to squeeze through to the levels below. Once he reached the bottom level, he was able to enter the maze of tunnels and corridors beneath the prison. These were tunnels mostly built for sewage and steam pipes that extended beneath the entire facility. They were cramped, damp, massively extensive and confusing, and they were pitch black. Using the pair of battery-powered reading glasses, David explored the labyrinth night after night, only to return to his cell six hours later just before morning count at 5.30. Over the course of 85 sleepless nights, David mastered the maze of tunnels, spending nearly 500 hours desperately, but patiently engineering and discovering a way out. Eventually, he discovered a large steam pipe that he knew ran beneath the prison yard and under the walls to a power station on the outside. But due to budget cuts, the steam was turned off for the spring and summer months. Lucky them. The pipe would be just enough for a man to fit through, if only they could get inside of it. One of the biggest mysteries surrounding the escape is just how exactly David was able to cut his way into and then back out of this solid steel pipe. It seems like it shouldn't have been possible, which led officials to originally conclude that David had somehow gained access to power tools. However, to this day, David claims he did this part by hand. But just to add to the mystery, 
The steel sections David cut out of the pipes have still never been found. Once out of the steam pipe, it was just a quick walk through the sewer system that ran beneath the town of Denimora, then up a ladder, through a manhole, and up into the middle of a quiet intersection right next to the town's high school. Once the pipe had been cut, getting out was going to be easy. But getting out was only phase one. Phase two was getting away. And to do that, they decided to use Joyce. In the weeks preceding the jailbreak, not only had Joyce been made aware of their escape plans, she agreed to participate in them. And here was the plan. On the night of the escape, Joyce would drug her husband Lyle with sleeping pills that Richard had given her so she could sneak out of the house. Then she would drive her car to the intersection to wait for the convicts at precisely midnight. Then they would drive to her home to murder Lyle before fleeing Denimore in her car. At some point, David was supposed to part ways with the others, while Joyce and Richard rode off into the sunset together. It was a sick fantasy Joyce allowed herself to get caught up in, and David and Richard had every indication she'd follow through. So on June 5th, it was go time, and Richard looked at Joyce and told her, we're going out tonight, it was on. But then something happened. When push came to shove, something began snapping Joyce back into reality, and she had a panic attack. Lyle took her to the ER around 9.30 p.m., and she slept in the hospital that night. Richard and David had no clue their getaway driver was missing in action. That night after headcount, Richard and David crawled out of their cells for the last time, following the underground trail David had blazed. A crew from ABC News would later put on a GoPro and follow the exact same escape route, and it's more mind-blowing than you're probably imagining. But when David and Richard emerged from the manhole outside the prison walls, Joyce was nowhere to be seen. Despite the insane amount of planning and thought that went into the escape, David didn't have a backup plan in case Joyce got cold feet, which goes to show how confident they'd been that Joyce was completely wrapped around their fingers. With no other options, David and Richard climbed onto the street and fled into the woods. Joyce woke up the next morning in the hospital to news of the escape. It was already the biggest news story to ever hit the area, and she knew she was at the center of it. Later that day, she spoke with investigators and eventually came clean about her involvement in the escape. Good afternoon. I'm Superintendent Joseph D'Amico, Superintendent of the New York State Police. First, I'd like to start by reassuring the community that we're doing all that we can to ensure their safety during this search and this investigation. As law enforcement, we're all in during this search. We won't stop until we have these convicts captured. To date, we've received more than 500 leads and we're thoroughly investigating each and every one. That means looking behind every tree, under every rock and inside every structure until we find these men. Today, the public will have noticed an increased police pres presence both in the village of Danamora and in Willsboro in Essex County. We continue to go door to door, checking homes and seasonal residences, and we continue to do vehicle checks at a number of roadblocks in the area. We have more than 450 law enforcement members working on this search. Nobody had any clue where the convicts could be or how far they might have traveled. 
it was entirely possible they were still hiding somewhere in the village of Denimore itself. Over the course of the next 23 days, the search team would grow to more than 1,000 law enforcement officers. Residents across the entirety of northern New York were disgusted to discover a cop killer like David was now on the run. But when they learned the truth about Richard Matt, the other escapee, well, they were downright terrified, as they should have been. The fact that two known killers could literally be anywhere in the area was a true living nightmare. With a veritable army of police looking for them, David and Richard had no choice but to improvise, bushwhacking their way through treacherous mountain terrain, and for three weeks, they were successfully able to stay one step ahead of the men that were chasing them. And they did it by taking a page out of Richard's teenage playbook. They ransacked numerous unoccupied hunting cabins dotting the landscape while trying to head for the Canadian border. Most of the cabins were stocked with small amounts of food and other hunting supplies, and something Richard couldn't keep his hands off of. Alcohol. At every cabin they encountered, Richard made a beeline to whatever bottles of booze had been left behind on the shelves, drinking himself silly. Understandably, David became infuriated, hell-bent on keeping his head on straight and not getting caught. But as Richard continued to get drunk day after day, David knew he needed to leave him behind. And that's just what he did on June 23rd. For three days, Richard kept himself inebriated while trying to make his way through the dense forest alone, walking with a shotgun he'd stolen from the last cabin he'd ransacked. On June 26th, he decided he was tired of walking and figured he'd steal a car. He waited near a nearby highway and attempted to shoot the driver of a passing vehicle, which was soon reported to police. And as soon as police heard about the incident, they descended on the area in force. After searching the area, police were initially stumped when they didn't see the culprit. It seemed like a dead end. Troopers were getting ready to leave the area when one of them heard Richard accidentally cough in the woods. As they ran into the woods to apprehend him, Richard pointed his shotgun at one of the men, but it was the officer who would be able to shoot first, striking Richard in the head, killing him instantly. They later discovered Richard's gun had already run out of ammo, and his blood alcohol level was more than twice the legal driving limit. David had no way of knowing what had happened to Richard, but by this point, he probably didn't care. He only had one thing in mind, escaping over the border into Canada, and he almost did it. On June 28th, Police Sergeant Jay Cook was patrolling the roads up near the border when he saw a man walking through an alfalfa field. He pulled his car over and called out to the man, and when David turned around to look, Jay immediately recognized him and began pursuing him on foot. David then made a mad dash to get to the woods. He knew if he could make it to the woods line, he could disappear again and make it to Canada, something Sergeant Jay Cook realized as well. After repeatedly shouting and warning David, the sergeant drew his sidearm and shot David twice from a distance, truly shots only an expert marksman could have made. After the second shot, David fell to the ground. He suffered a collapsed lung, but was able to be captured alive. 
After recovering from his injuries, David was again shipped off to a maximum security prison to spend the rest of his life behind bars. At least, we hope. As soon as word of David's capture hit the airwaves, the entire state of New York rejoiced. Governor Andrew Cuomo addressed the public almost immediately. We are here with good news, as I'm sure you've heard already. The nightmare is finally over. It took 22 days, uh, but we can now confirm, as of two days ago, as you know, uh, Mr. Matt uh, is deceased and the other escapee, Mr. Sweat, uh, is in custody. He's in stable condition. Um, and we let's give a big round of applause to the men and women of law enforcement who have done a great job. I had the chance to speak with Sergeant Cook and uh, congratulate him on his great police work. He was alone when this happened. Uh, Sergeant Cook happens to be from Troop B, which is uh, this area, so he knew the area very well. Uh, but he was still alone and it was a very courageous act. I said to uh, Sergeant Cook, who has uh, two daughters, 16 and 17, I said, well, you go home tonight and uh, tell your daughters that you're a hero with teenage girls that'll probably last a good 24 hours and then you'll just be go back to being a regular dad, as I well know. During the manhunt, Joyce Mitchell was formally arrested. She made a full confession which included providing Richard and David with all the tools they used to escape. However, as time went on, her explanation for her motivation began to shift. Originally, she told investigators she'd allowed herself to become caught up in the fantasy of running away with Richard, but later she claimed her actions were motivated out of fear, afraid not just for herself, but for her husband. She claimed Richard threatened to have Lyle killed, if she didn't go along with everything. A claim she also made during her sentencing hearing, where she pleaded guilty to a felony charge for promoting prison contraband. I was fearful of Mr. Matt threatening to kill my husband and wanting to know where my son and my mother lived. I could not let anything happen to my husband and family. I love them all so much. I love them more than life itself, Your Honor. I'm not a bad person. I clearly made a horrible mistake. I realize I need to be responsible for my actions, but I'm hoping you will have mercy on me. Your Honor, no words can explain how deeply sorry I am. Prior to her sentencing, the judge received an avalanche of letters from members of the community begging him to throw the book at her. Some were even calling for her to spend the rest of her life in jail for her role in the escape. However, the maximum sentence under New York law that a judge could impose for the crime she'd been charged with was seven years, with a minimum sentence of two and a half years. All Joyce could do was hope that her tearful words before the judge might earn her some mercy. A large portion of the local population were terrorized. Many were forced to flee their homes. Some did not have places to go and had to rent hotel rooms or leave the area. Many residents did not sleep many nights, afraid that these two extremely violent individuals might be outside their homes. Roadblocks and limited access to certain areas caused businesses to shut down or limit their hours. 
causing uh, economic pain to many. And then we have the law enforcement officers came here, not just from all over New York State, but from all over the country. They traversed very inhospitable territory, never knowing if the next step they took in deeply wooded areas might be their last. And think of their families at home, sick with concern and fright for their loved ones. At any time, you could have stopped the escape from happening. You state that you proceeded in the way you did out of fear for what might happen to your husband. And you further state that you, quote, did the wrong thing for the right reason. Ms. Mitchell, I just don't find that explanation credible. Your husband's life would not have been more endangered by exposing the plot to escape. While you express remorse for the harm you caused the community, you also stated that you believe the negotiated sentence is too harsh. Taking into consideration all the various sentencing factors, I can assure you, you have nothing to complain about. After his closing statements, the judge sentenced Joyce to an indeterminate sentence of two and a half to seven years, of which she served five and was released in 2020. Despite everything Joyce had done, all the people, law enforcement, and businesses or actions had impacted, there was one person who stuck around and didn't turn their back on her. Joyce's husband, Lyle. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at Madness Pod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows at free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.